In the first reading, we are told that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. The first reading for All Saints Day is from Revelation, the seventh chapter. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. The psalmody for All Saints Day is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with the tambourine and the lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them ju the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. In the second reading, we hear the words uh, to, to familiar song, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. The second reading for All Saints Day is from First John, the third chapter. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we... But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 12th chapter. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment? is the most important of all. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask Him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself is the in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the gospel of our Lord. So on All Saints Day, I'm going to start off with it's just a, a, a beautiful line or poem or just a series of words that at some point in my history landed before me and they've blessed me and they've just lingered with me ever since. And they almost always remembered on days like this, All Saints. Here's the words. Some people come into our lives and they quickly go. Some people come into our lives and they bring pain. But some people come into our lives and leave beautiful memories in our hearts. And we are never, ever the same. All saints. While talking with families... Um, over these years, there's been a lot of times over the years where I've been with families who are saying goodbye to loved ones. Lots of times. And as we're preparing for committal services um, at the graveside, as we're preparing for the, the gatherings in, in, in churches for worship and fellowship times, um, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings and things going through their minds and their hearts. And it's almost like a flood stage of things. As they preparing for that time, um, it was a gift that was given to me as, um, as a child when we were saying goodbye to one of the grandparents. The pastor gave the questions to us. And since that time, um, I've been sharing them with others. And the questions are these, and it helps folks remember, particularly for Christians. Here's the questions. What about your loved one is Christ-like? As you're thinking about the person that you're saying goodbye to, that their body is expired, that their soul is returned to God, and that you'll see them again, but as you're remembering that they're not there anymore, as you cannot hear their voice, you cannot see their face, as, as you miss that last chance for just one more hug, in that absence, it's a, it's a stirring up of what you remember. What about them was Christ-like? 
And then linked to that was the next question. What about them? Let you know that they love you. When you remember what was Christ-like and you remember those good things, now lend over just even one more step. What about them? Let you know that they loved you. And the third question was asked, if our Heavenly Father could say something to you now, if your loved one could come back and just have 10 seconds to say something to you on behalf of the Father, what would the Heavenly Father want you to hear right now? Thinking about these goodbye times, one came to mind um, this week. He actually comes to mind a lot during All Saints, but his name was Sam. It's a rare thing to know a person who's not afraid of death because everybody I've, it, just about everybody I've met, when it comes time to the dying process, we're afraid. Some are afraid of the outcome because they don't know Jesus and they haven't experienced the love of God in their life and they've lived their life separated from that. And so they have doubts and wonders and fears and guilts that just people shouldn't have. But other people are afraid of the process. And I've known some of those too. I've known some guys, and one of them I just remember is Fred. And, and Fred was a fireball, just very dynamic guy. And uh, he only had pretty much one fear in his life. He, he almost had a drowning event when he was younger. He says, suffocation and drowning just terrifies me, Pastor. And I'm going to die from mesothelioma. That means I'm going to suffocate. And this is horrible. He says, Pastor, I'm not afraid of the outcome. I know that Jesus' love is bigger than my sins and He's prepared a place for me. Pastor, I'm really not afraid of the outcome, but I am afraid of the process. And so fear and dying is just kind of part of it. Even though we have faith, there's just something in there that we're not in control and not being in control, it can terrify us. So of all the people and all the times in these last 21 years of serving as a pastor, one really came close, Sam tell you a little bit about him because I also think it will give us some insight into the gospel lesson for the day. Sam, when I met him, was about 82 years old. He was a veteran of World War II. He believed in God and he knew some things about Jesus from his earlier life as a child and just as a person. But Sam did not have much need for the church or want for the church. He did not need anyone, actually. He had survived a Great Depression. He had survived a war in the Pacific. In fact, he was given a very important medal, a distinguished medal for his heroic actions in combat as he was fighting the Japanese and saving his friends around him. Upon returning to the United States from the war, he began, he developed a large construction company. His construction company did road projects and building projects for the, the towns and the cities, municipalities, but for the state and as far as the federal government as well. He had a large construction company and he was the head of it. He started it, he managed it, and he ruled it. He did very well. When the time was right, he found himself a wife. He contributed to his family and the raising of his family provided all the resources that they could possibly have. And in time, they had their educations. And they personally, all three of his children, had amassed tremendous wealth and been very successful in the world. He was a self-made man. He was a master of his life. He appeared to have and to be what many others wanted. 
leadership and power and influence. He was a God, guy's guy kind of a thing. He just had all of that. He drank a lot of alcohol. A lot. He also smoked cigarettes. A lot. Who knows? Maybe the scars of his childhood, the scars of the war. Maybe it was just sin, weakness that he so perfectly hid from the world. Maybe they began to show in physical forms in his life. Because he was being treated for emphysema. His lungs were not working very well and he had to carry an oxygen tank. So he had to stop smoking. And that was hard. No one told him what to do before that. But he recognized their words of truth. So he told himself. And it was hard. A little time more passed and the internal organs were starting to get older and not working as well. They were damaged and tired. So he had a restricted diet. And he also could no longer drink alcohol. Someone told him that. He wasn't happy about that. The evidence of his life of foolishness was starting to surface. Still, he was able to make his decisions. And he led his very own life. And he would do so proudly in these conditions. Then, from like nowhere, came a medium, strong intensity stroke. And that's when I met him for the first time. I enter as a pastor. I'm wearing all the black clothes and the white collar. They know what I'm about. They know who I'm an ambassador for. And I enter the room as his pastor. In that place, watch the nurses. They had to feed him. That was shameful and humiliating to him. No one had to feed him before. He was capable until then. And they had to feed him because he wasn't swallowing very well. His face was droopy. His hand wasn't working. And he couldn't swallow. So he's getting help getting food. They had to bathe him. Another embarrassing thing for him as a man. They had to bathe him because he couldn't bathe himself. He couldn't even shave himself. More than that, someone had to wipe his butt. For him, it couldn't have been worse than that. He couldn't even manage his own wastes. So there he is when I enter the room. I see him in that hospital bed. When I come in on that afternoon, on that little portable lift up and down kind of a table that they have in the hospitals, there on that sat a mirror. One of those mirrors, my mother had one of these. My grandmother had one as well. One of those round mirrors that has kind of two sides. It had a little bit of a stand it would sit on and you could adjust it so you could see. One was just a standard mirror where you looked at it and you got the regular picture, but you could flip it over and got the other one. Boom, like magnifying glass. All of a sudden your face is very large in this mirror. He had one of those on his nightstand. And he was looking as reflection of what was his face in that nightstand mirror. Somewhere between looking at that mirror and knowing that this young God guy is in the room. I was young then. Um... Somewhere in that space, he struggled to save words and he said these words. He said, slurred speech, when my money is spent, when I'm only a burden, will God love me? Wow. What a question. When my money's spent, when I'm nothing but a burden, will God love me? Not understanding how um, or why, and I don't have to understand how or why, it just happens sometimes, but for just a moment, 
It's like I entered his world. It's like I got a glimpse of him. Empathy in a way this is hard to explain. So hard to describe, but these words will get a a glimpse, and some of what words are limited, but a glimpse of what the experience was. I experienced a gratitude, but it was closely linked with a sadness. Like they were swirling with each other. Gratitude, sadness, regret for all kinds of things that could have been done and should have been done and ought to have been. There's just regrets over that. And there was some guilt in these moments. As a, as a, as a husband that once was not so good of a husband and as a father that could have been more. And is his role as, an, as a boss. And his, there's guilt with that. And at the same time, there was blessing for the cars he had driven and the trips he had seen and all the things he had experienced. And then linked with that was a vanity, a profound sense of vanity. Like, what was it all worth? And will it even matter? Will I even be remembered when they walk by my tombstone? Well, they won't even know my story. Vanity. He's wanting control, but yet he was very alone. Very alone. All of that swirled in this glimpse. And as I came back from that glimpse, I'm looking at his eyes. His eyes had not released me from his question. So I answered his question. I said, the Father, it's the gospel within the gospel. It's what we see on the signs in the football games, but it's the truth that even the familiarity does not diminish. I said, the Father so loves the world that He gives His Son. And whoever believes in Him will not die, but will have eternal life. And I went on to the next one. And the Father does not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But the Father sends His Son so that all would be saved. So that all could come home. It was a rescue mission, this Jesus. And I said, God loves you this much. And Jesus opened his arms on the cross and he died. Yes, Sam. When your money is spent. And basically money was him. He, that's how he influenced the world. That was his value. That was his contribution to his world. That was his identity. And the more he had, the more he was. And it was so false. And he knew that it was so shallow. In these moments, he got it. And he says, when it's all gone and I have no value. And when in fact, not just any value, but when I have only a burden to share because they can't eat, I can't even wipe my butt. When that's all I bring to this world, do I still value even with God yes Sam when your money is spent and your only burden God still loves you I said that reality has always been true and linked with this was something in, in, in hindsight and as I thought about this even now it's it, it can seem harsh and it can be seen obviously uncomfortable but I said it, and I, in, in hindsight, God, maybe Sam, forgive me. Um, I said, but a better question, Sam, is will you love God? He didn't respond right, but he was slow to respond because of a stroke. So he sat there and he pondered the question, he pondered his response. He didn't say anything. When I said, all that God does better question is will you love God he reached out his still functioning hand and I understood it as is a verbal 
heartfelt, total body expression, just a communication of sorts. He reached out with his functioning hand and as a reaching out towards God, and he was like saying, yes, I want to love God. Help me love God. I've not done this very well. I don't know how to do it very well. I've failed at a lot of things. I can't, but will you help? It was a reaching up and a reaching out. So I grabbed his hand and we prayed. When you don't know what else to say or to do, just pray. It kind of, it just works. And um, after we prayed, I said, I'll see you again. And I said, so that rest of that time, about another four or five days in the hospital, I was there once a day. And all we did was read. I read the Bible lessons and signed to the day. It was a Psalm. It was an Old Testament. It was a New Testament. It was a gospel verse. And we just read the Bible verses. And we did that every day. And as he laid there in the shadow of this valley of death, he was able to hear the words that I read from God's Bible about God's love and God's truth and His forgiveness and His heavenly way of life as opposed to the world's temptations that leave us into dark, ugly places. He heard the differences between those things in, in a beautiful way. He accepted an invitation Actually, it's a command to love God in return. And that man, from those days going forward, that that same driven man for those 82 years that had done all that stuff, it was like he took on a new mission. He wasn't caring about all the stuff before. His mission was, I'm going to love God and I'm going to love people. I've got 82 years to make up. And he lived like it. He was driven to read God's Word and to pray and to engage people in His family and just love. It was beautiful to watch. Beautiful to watch. On his deathbed just a few years later, now with friends and family, the reconciliations were beautiful, with family in the hospital room, he repeated the words that he would hear me say as a pastor to the children when they come up or to people when they come up and they just receive a blessing, they don't receive communion. He repeated the words beautiful words that they hear at the the sacrament time. And it was his last words to us in the room. His last words to his family and his friends that we could understand was this. We are children of God. We are loved. We are forgiven. Not a lot of words left, but beautiful. When we gathered as a group to remember him and prepare for the sending or the, the committal services, One of his children found on his nightstand, it was written in his own hand, a prayer. And they think it was was older paper. It had been used a lot, read a lot, wrinkled, but was there by his nightstand. That paper, in his handwriting, was this prayer. Thank you, God, for your love and your forgiveness. And thank you for giving me the ability to see myself as you see me. What a prayer for a man who was making up for time in those 80 years. 20 years later now, we're gathering on all saints. I think perhaps that's a, a nice, maybe only for one all saints day, a nice thought of what a saint is. If you think about the saints in your lives, a saint is someone who has been given the ability to see themselves as God sees them. Everything. In one flash, the good, the bad, the, just everything that you are, you think, you've pondered in your, mo- your motives, your heart. God sees all that. And He loves you. And linked with that 
is the saint who loves God too. Someone who sees themselves as God sees them and someone who loves God. A saint. Now with those things stirred up going into the Gospel lesson, in Mark chapter 11, so we're in chapter 12. Today's reading was from chapter 12. In chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is His last week. Our verse from today in chapter 12 was from His last week. In chapter 11, the beginning of that is His entrance into Jerusalem. It's a Passover days. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have come from around the known world at that time to return to Jerusalem. It's big and it's exciting and it's, it's busy. And it's very nervous for the Romans because they have way too many people. Their little garrison and their little numbers of soldiers cannot manage this very well. They're just trying to survive a wave, if you will. And so Jesus has entered and they've, they've lined the streets and they've hailed Him as the Messiah of God and they're ex- hoping that this Roman oppression would go away. So now the Romans are not happy with this entrance and they're not happy with Jesus. On top of that, you have Jewish people, the leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they're a little bit nervous because they have this little cozy little arrangement with Romans to try to keep peace and not wreck everything. And they want to keep their positions of power and authority and respect and all that sort of stuff. And they're trying to keep their thing together. And Jesus has not always been saying the message that they want Him to say. So they're nervous about this. But still, on that Monday, that day, that first day of the week, they, He enters The very next day, it gets even more because when he's in the temple, he cleans it out. That happens on his second day. He cleans out the temple. And he's overthrowing the tables and all their economic systems by which they were going to sell people the opportunity to be forgiven by all their ways of selling people the chance to say they're sorry, these atonement opportunities. He just overturned it. and He he called them out for what they were. You're using this as a way of manipulating people and to profit by them. Shame on you. And he was cleaning out the Father's house. And now as soon as that happens, it's war. Not so much with the Romans. They don't care about that so much. But it's now war with the, with the, with the, the leaders, the Sanhedrin. They need him gone. And so now in this Sanhedrin, we've got to remember that there's about 70. And in these 70, it wasn't all one political united front. It was much like our Congress. It was divided. You had Sadducees and you had Pharisees and they weren't always the best of friends. However, when it came to Jesus, they were going to unite. And you're thinking about the Pharisees. Their emphasis was keeping a long list of laws. The Pharisees had 613 extra codes. And at the early church, I was sharing with this. It's kind of curious. Why 613? If you're ever thinking about numbers in the Bible and numbers with the Jewish people, numbers with Christianity, almost every time there's a number, there's a reason for it. It's a symbolic way of teaching or something. Much like what we do today. Why am I wearing a white robe? Because remember Revelation. We're all wearing white robes around the altar, that sort of stuff. 613. That number comes because there were in the commandments. All, if you add up all the Hebrew letters to the, the commandments that Moses gave, there's 613 letters. And so all those 613 letters, they had to... Add, they made a code for each one of those letters. So there's where 613 came from. They split 365 of those for their year. 365 were about things you don't do, and the rest of them were things you are to do. So they split them into two categories. And they had heated debates in their schools amongst their academic thoughts about who was smarter and wiser and more clever to decide, well, which commandment's number one, which commandment's number two, number three, number four, and so on. And they would debate all those 613 codes. Why one had more precedent over the other. And that's what they did. And they were good at it. 
the Pharisees. Sadducees looked at that and said, you guys are knuckleheads. We don't hold all of these books and all the prophets and the Psalms to be our scriptures. We just hold the five books, of the, the Torah books, the Moses books. And so they had a debate about that. And they also had a debate about what happens when you die. The Pharisees said there's more and the Sadducees said you're done. And so in their political tensions, here comes Jesus, and they both agreed, including the scribes. They were like the, the, the meticulous legal ones, right? The, the, they all agreed, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, that Jesus had to go because he's threatening the whole thing. And so on day one, they send the Pharisees. On chapter, this, this day that we're in, the first line of arguments, the Pharisees went at him. And they had a good line. Boy, they were clever with their tact. They, they thought about the best way that would wreck him with the Romans so that he'd be killed and or wreck him with the people and, and be eliminated and just discarded and forgotten or potentially both at the same time. And their question was a great question. Lord, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Oh, they set him up. That was their first question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And he had a great answer. They, they didn't know how to respond. Oh, they'd go back and rehuddle. Okay, Sadducees, it's your turn. Tag, you're it. You get in the ring with Jesus, right? So they send the Sadducees in and they ask him, okay, Lord, a woman has, uh, man and woman are married. This man comes from a large family. He has seven brothers, a total of seven. She marries brother number one and he dies. Well, it's only right that she buries brother number two because she's supposed to have children and all that sort of stuff that they had in their codes. So he marries number two. Well, he dies. He marries number... by by the time you know it, this woman's been married to all seven brothers, and now she dies. And now in who heaven and in heaven, whose wife she's going to be? Ridiculous questions. I mean, but they were going to get him. So that's how the that's how the the Sadducees were going to get Jesus and and get him to lose his his reputation. And he answered that question well. Well, now what? So they've huddled. They both united on the fact that he needs to go. They both, the only place of unity really between these two, not the only place, but one of the significant places was Moses. They both held the five books. Pharisees just had had a bunch more books, but they both held the five books. And in those five books, the star of these books is Moses. He is the one like no other in history who had ever been, he he'd not only been in the presence of God in the burning bush, he's someone that saw God face to face. That's a rare thing. It's an exclusive thing. And not so much when he came to the mountain and they knew God was there. When he came down, the glow and the life, I mean, in the transfiguration, how Jesus just glowed this light of God. When Moses came down from that mountain, he glowed with this energy, this light and this life, this, this grace of God, if you will. He glowed in such a way as they veiled him. And so when Moses spoke, there was been no other in their history that they had respect like that. And so now, how can they use Jesus, who's a little bit liberal with his creativity and he embellishes with some stuff? Well, they get him to ask a question related to Moses and he adds something or he deletes something or he, he's kind of creative with his approach. The people are going to recognize him as a fraud because you don't mess with what Moses said and he'll be dismissed. And so they said, that's how we're going to do it. And they teamed up with it. And the, the scribe of scribes, the, the wise veteran one, he waits till the under attempts ever in these debates are all happening. And when the time is right, he goes in for his test. They're going to get Jesus once and for all. So on this test, he asks him, Lord, which is the greatest commandment? This is the stuff they debate day in and day out. They know the commandments. They know the Shema, the greatest one, hero. I mean, they know this stuff. In fact, everybody there recites at least twice a day. That's just what they do. They remember those words. 
And they're thinking, well, if he adds something or takes something away, we got him. He's going to be eliminated and discarded because he's, he's, he's touched on something you don't touch. They ask him the question and he responds. The Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And you will love him with your heart and your soul, your mind, and he adds your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He said exactly what he told Moses the Father and Him told Moses to stay on top of the mountain. They, Jesus is, is just showing how He's exactly one with God and is God because He was there at the time. He knows what Moses said. He gave Him the words. He, gave him the, he inspired Moses' heart. When Moses was teaching the people about all that God has done, he was the one who was saying, now have them respond to me with love. I, just don't, I don't want their sacrifices. I want their hearts. Don't give me your discretionary token cash flows. I want your life. I want your heart. I want your affections. Don't just give me a Christmas present. Give me your love. He's the one that inspired that in Moses. And Moses had been given that to the people. So when Jesus said it, it was as if their, their, their minds were being lit up to all these hundreds of years of teaching, thousands of years of teaching. It's a beautiful thing that he said. And the teacher had no leverage on him. The scribe, it was a perfect answer. In fact, it was the answer that he would have wanted to give had he had the opportunity to give. And all he did was echo Jesus' words. So their plot to destroy him and have him wrecked only shone God's work within him even more, more powerfully and more beautifully. Now Jesus' hope in all this, by having him go back to Moses, was his, his hope was is that he would stir up all that Moses said. That as he makes reference to what Moses has taught the people, and the people say at least twice a day, they recite it from memory, as they do that, then maybe, just maybe, they would remember how much God loves them. In spite of them. You complained about everything I provided for the, all these times in the wilderness. In fact, you died in the wilderness and only your next generation entered in there. But I have always loved you. And when your whole batches of people were knuckleheads and they were worshiping false gods and doing evil, dark, destructive things, I would always hold a remnant of hope and they would rise back up for another chance. I would never take the tree down to the dirt and burn its roots. I'd always have a shoot coming up because I want hope for my people. And Jesus was hoping that in that place they would recognize that no, they would never ever be able to keep Moses' commandments. No, they actually have never done it. And that in fact, their only gift to God would be gratitude and a hand raising up and say, God help. Just like Sam. After all those years, the only thing his reply was an outreached hand. I can't help. And thank you. And on that day, they failed. They did not put their hands out. In fact, they just inspired the driving of spikes later on with mallets, using the Romans to help them out. They rejected an opportunity to be loved. They rejected a call to love in return. And it was a tremendously sad day. It ended with the cross. But not long after that, not long after that rejection by the Sanhedrin, and the people who shout crucify, and the disciples who all run away and hide, and everybody who is spit and mocked. In spite of that, the Holy Spirit's inspiration continues because God's love never stops. And God's love in His Holy Spirit touches people, and some, one at a time, begin to reach up and out. One by one. They begin to hear the word of forgiveness. 
they begin to adopt God's love and respond with the reaching out towards God and to each other. And the world, from that simple beginning with those simple first saints, would never be the same. On this day, we remember saints, the ones that have touched our lives. And we ponder upon this journey of discipleship. And every once in a while, whether we're afraid to or not, we can ask the question, what about me is Christ-like? When you leave church today, think about that question. When they gather around your casket and they remember you, what about your life is Christ-like? And when they look to your pictures standing on the table with all the other pictures of your life and you and your family and your friends and your, your big moments and all that sort of stuff, when they look at all that, how are they going to remember that you loved them? And what do you think the Heavenly Father would like to say to you today? If God could say anything to you today, what would he want you to hear? Thinking of Sam, it's a little bit of inspiration. Everyone will have those questions uniquely answered. But from Sam, beautiful child of mine, see you as I see you. You are loved. You are forgiven. Now love me back. Enter my embrace. Some people come into our lives and they quickly go. Some people come into our lives and they bring pain. But some come into our lives and they leave beautiful memories in our hearts. And we are never ever the same. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son, Jesus. And thank you for inspiring the saints in our lives. Amen.